Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And here we are back with another episode of the Mind Body Musings podcast. Today, we are chatting with Jamal Yogis. A graduate of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, Jamal is the author of Saltwater Buddha, a coming-of-age memoir about how surfing in the sea helped him transition back to the world after a year in a Zen monastery, now also a documentary film, and author of The Fear Project, which looks at the neuroscience of fear and courage using science, mindfulness, and sports to reveal ways in which humans can live more fully. His new book, All Our Waves Are Water, here now in July by Harper Wave, uses the sea as a metaphor to explore the true self. Jamal's writing has appeared in ESPN Magazine, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and many others. He teaches meditation and creative writing at places like Spirit Rock, Karpalu, 1440 Multiversity, and The Writing Pad. I love this episode with Jamal. As many of you know, I love the metaphor of water because it's so beautifully perfect for talking about so many instances in life coming from anxiety to perfectionism to the feminine, the masculine, and to zen and to being in control of your life by letting go of control. Water is beautiful for that. And so I really enjoyed reading his book, All Our Waves Are Water, and as such, because I enjoyed it so much, I wanted to have him on the show. So stick around for that episode. It is a very good one. I think you'll relate to Jamal a lot. Before we head on over, here's the review of the week. This comes from Liz in Rock. She says, love this podcast with five stars. Maddie's podcast was one of the ones that got me hooked. I now subscribe to many of her guest podcasts, but hers is the one I always come back to, whether it's on a walk or driving to work. Her show always seems to give me what I need. Thank you, Liz, so much for listening and to being a loyal fan of the podcast. You rock. It means so much to me. These reviews are what keep me going. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to write this and to also coming back to this podcast every single day or I guess every Wednesday. Thank you. Okay, really quickly, I'm not going to go in deep to this, but I am very excited to announce the show's new sponsor. And this is my brand new, beautiful, sparkling partnership with Beauty Counter. Recently had a very interesting realization and moment. I watched a documentary called The Human Experiment, which went into detail on the different skincare, beauty products, household cleaning items, couches, our furniture, all this stuff, and all the chemicals that have been put into these household objects over the years, causing issues such as infertility, cancer, hormone imbalances, and so many other things. Now, I am not a firm believer in fear-mongering. I don't think that's a good way to go about it. So I will be a little honest after I watched this documentary. I got a little fidgety and a little bit nervous about all the different chemicals around me. So... What I wanted to do to reframe my mindset around, oh no, I can't touch anything, is to really just take one small step to take care of my body so that when I want to have a kid, 
she is healthy, he is healthy, or I can even get pregnant. So I'm making sure that the chemicals I'm putting on my largest organ are clean and non-toxic to the best of my ability. So I've switched over a few different things in my life using the menstrual cup instead of tampons. I have been getting honey waxes, which is very pure, non-toxic type of wax instead of regular wax. And then I thought, okay, what's the next level I can take? Not in an obsessive way, just in a loving, feminine nourishment kind of way, a beautiful way, where I'm putting actual ingredients from the earth on my body. Because things that get put on the body get absorbed in the body, the energy, the stories. And I also realized that one of the, the things that I wasn't doing in my life when it comes to feminine embodiment, I had the, the dance down, the movement, the sensuality, the dressing. But the one thing I've never paid attention to in my life is my skincare, ever. And you know why? It's probably because I was very blessed with good skin. Thank you, mom. But with that said, that doesn't mean I will always have good skin. That doesn't mean that I'm not getting damaged by putting on toxic things in my skin. So the reason why I ended up pairing with Beauty Counter is because they have 1,500 chemicals that are never in their products. As much as I wish all the -the over-the-counter stuff we buy at Walgreens was like that, it's not. So the rules have not been updated since the 1930s. 11 chemicals, 11 chemicals, you guys, are banned from the United States' healthcare. I mean, not healthcare, sorry, skincare. 11, chem- <laughs> 11 chemicals are banned from that. In Euro- the European Union, it's 1,300. I don't feel taken care of. And it kind of upsets me. And I love that. I've talked many times about in my podcast, a woman's longing is so powerful because it's rooted in emotions and not logic. And that's one of the strongest catalysts for change. And so Beauty Counter was started by a woman who had a longing and look at the change she's created, helping families get pregnant again because they get all these toxics out of their body. I love that. I resonated with it. So I've partnered up with them. So there are a few ways you can get involved. The very first thing is I would love for you to go visit the post, the blog post I just wrote on my website about how I got started with Beauty, Care, uh, Beauty Counter and why, and why this skincare has resonated with me. It's a really great post. I really would love if you checked it out. Another way you can get involved, I've started a Facebook group. I will also have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, you can go to the show notes for this, click directly on it, and you will join the Facebook group. If you want to search for it on Facebook directly, it's called nourishing your feminine with skincare and beauty so if you just type that in you'll find it and i'll prove you i would love to have you there you can ask me what anything you want to know about non-toxic beauty and skincare i am new to this i'm always honest and upfront with you guys but i would love to share what i'm learning and if you're even interested in joining my team then please reach out for that i would love to hop on a call with you to see if beauty counter would match up with your values in life, your ideals, and how you would like to start making passive income for yourself. I think it's a beautiful way to make passive income, but also doing something you truly love. And I've been running my own business for over five years now. So if you're on my team, you know you're going to be getting great business coaching for this. I'd love to have you. I will be doing a podcast just on this whenever I um, have some room for it in my podcast schedule. So stay tuned for that. I just wanted to do a quick little brief rundown 
as the podcast sponsor um, because I am adoring them. I'm in love with Beauty Counter right now. So make sure you go to the show notes for this. Click on those links. And if you just want to check out Beauty Counter in, in itself, you can also click on a link to that in the show notes. I'll just have a plain link to the Beauty Counter website and you can check it out from there. Okay, okay. Without further ado, let's go head on over to this awesome show. You are now entering the Mind Body Musings podcast. If you find yourself hungry for growth, eager for inspiration, and longing for self-improvement, welcome home. Hosted by motivational speaker and life coach Maddie Moon, you can be certain you will learn how to change your life in magical ways in each and every episode. Are you ready to stop caring what other people think? Is it time you break limiting beliefs and empower your whole being? Do you know how to use the one life you've been given to the absolute fullest? Join Maddie Moon and her inspirational guests every Wednesday for the life-altering discussions on freedom, vulnerability, abundance, and so much more. For more insight, grab your free gift on MaddieMoon.com and uncover your own once-in-a-lifetime greatness within. If you have kind words to say, feel free to leave a review on the show in iTunes or send your favorite episode to a friend. We look forward to hearing your insights and growing together in unexpected ways. And now, without further ado, here's your host. Maddie Moon. Okay, and we are back here with episode 162 with Jamal Yogis, who I'm so excited to interview today. After I had the immense pleasure of reading his book, I was reading your book actually when I was at Kripalu, and I was just reading your bio to refresh myself, and you teach at Kripalu, so I thought that was pretty cool that I was there reading your book and studying it and doing all my yoga and stuff, but anyways, I am so excited to have you here to interview you about this lovely book you're publishing, and thank you so much just for coming on here and sharing your wisdom with my tribe. Absolutely. It's an honor, and that's really cool you were reading it at Kripalu. It's just such a special place, and... Um, I always feel like, you know, when you come out with these books, they're a little bit like your children, um, you've birthed them and they're traveling the world. So the fact that my book already got to make it to Kapalu in the first <laughs> few days of its life, I'm stoked. Isn't that cool? I love thinking about things like that. Cause I had, I had just gotten it and I was teaching my own retreat there and I was looking at my bookshelf and I was like, okay, I got all these different books I can read. And I was just really drawn to your book because it seemed like just similar in the centering yourself and the meditation aspect and I was so glad I did it just was perfect for the energy I was trying to to create within myself and also within my treat so yes awesome so happy to have you here the first thing that I always have my guests do is dive into their background and their story and I know this question is so broad and big but what can you tell us about how you got to where you are today without making it too overwhelming on you yeah, yeah. Well, if we have about a week, I'll go through all the data. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Um, so, I mean, how I got into like yoga and meditation um, was really through my parents. I was, I often say I was, I was born into the meditation cult a little bit. And my, my parents were studying yoga in the 70s um, in, in Boston, sort of that first wave of Indian um, yogis who had come over. And they named me after one of their teacher's teachers, Baba Jamal Singh. And they were sort of always dabbling in yoga and Buddhism. And we would, you know, go to ashrams and things. But 
we were also a military family. So we're military brats moving around and, you know, like really typical American upbringing as well. So we weren't like, I guess we weren't like the, the typical, like I say in the book, we weren't like up in Mendocino, just like off the grid, like doing yoga and raising goats or anything. We, um, we were, uh, just lived in the suburbs. And so I just had both of those sides and I kind of rebelled against, um, I was open to it, but it just wasn't really a part of my daily life as like a, you know, in elementary school and, and as a teenager until I started getting into lots of trouble in high school. And I, <laughs> I wasn't the bad kid. I was always the one to get caught. <laughs> and, mm. And I think I had an unconscious yearning actually to get caught because it wasn't really, I knew there was more to life than sort of the popularity contest of, of high school. And even though I loved all my friends, it was like, what are we really doing? And, you know, one thing led to another, I was on probation for like stealing some beer and getting a DUI when I was 16. And I started having these dreams of water and islands and I felt this incredible peace in the dreams. And, uh, I got a wild idea using, you know, my, uh, sort of that spontaneous teenage risk taking brain and got, took a one way flight to Maui. And I wanted to learn to surf and somehow I thought this would set everything right. You know, I didn't really know why. And I got there and had no money and was like, you know, bought, spent most of it on a surfboard and was just like renting this really cheap little shack trying to put together a life at 16. And it was hard, of course. And everything, you know, just felt like my things were collapsing in on me. And I was at that moment, that breaking point. And that is really where, when I said I need something. And I thought of meditation. I went down to the store and I ran into one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books. And I just you know, didn't even have the money to buy it. I was just like flipping through it. And, um, started doing some counting my breath and that was the first, um, real glimpse of finding joy that wasn't circumstantial. Um, you know, I think you have that when you're a kid naturally, but in, in sort of the tumult of high school period, I, I was like, Oh, there, there's something more here. And it was, it was crossing up with learning to surf and getting beaten down by the waves. And I started making this connection that the breath was very similar to the wind on the ocean. And when my breath calmed, it was like my mind, the waters of my mind started to calm. And, and just like the wind on the sea, when there's no wind, this ocean is smooth and and when there is wind, it's ruffled and stormy. And so from then on, I was just kind of hooked on this kind of this idea of water metaphors. And I went on to live in a Zen monastery. I thought I was going to be a monk. And then I didn't become a monk, but I went back to school and I went to the University of Hawaii because I wanted to keep on the water theme. And, you know, I also had a lot of travel and wanderlust. And I, so my books, um, you know, my first book takes you through the time to when I'm, I go to Columbia journalism school and I become a journalist, um, saltwater Buddha. And then in this book, I pick up where I left off and it's a, 
starts uh, with uh, travels in India, as you know, um, and comes up to about the time where um, I started doing a little of what you're doing, like teaching meditation, teaching yoga at Kripalu and such, and, and continuing to write as well. So that's the, that's the elevator version. <laughs> what a great story. One of my favorite things about it is this, all the wonderlust and the travel. It's so like addicting just to be able to read about other people's stories yeah. with going through different periods of their life. I love, love, love when people go from one thing to the next. It's so inspiring me, especially with your story. Here you are 16 years old, like going to Maui. I've never even heard of that really. That's so like out there brave. And then it really is though. I have, I, when I was 16 years old, I was being so, um, controlled and like put inside of this little locked box. It felt like, like, you know, couldn't be out hanging with these friends or in like you were out there living your life. And I know that there's tons of risk with that, like being 16 years old and traveling off on your own, but still I'm very impressed by that. You know, it, it, it's like sometimes you just need to, to start over and like clean the slate in order to really understand who you are. But I think it's just, um, it was, it was what worked for me at the time. You know, I, I feel kind of badly that I put my parents through it at the time, <laughs> but, but yeah, sometimes when things aren't working, you got to pick up and leave. And, and there is something, you know, we know now that travel and novelty, it stretches our brains and it stretches our hearts. And I think, you know, when you look at the neuroscience, um, you know, being in a new place, um, where people talk differently and the food is different. It's like the brain is getting all this dopamine and, and, and that dopamine is helping it grow. So you're literally just like, it's like a yoga in itself, just showing up in a place that's unfamiliar. We stretch our comfort zone, just, you know, it's just like stretching and breathing into a new asana, but it's like, uh, you know, it's the travel, the yoga of travel. I mean, I, I truly believe in it and, um, you know, and, and, I think it, it shakes us out of our, our, our grooves, you know, those samskaras that get so deep in our, in our brain where we're just, we're used to thinking in certain patterns. And that was really, you know, that's what I really wanted to get to in this new book was after all these travels that I've done, you know, going to Jerusalem and Indonesia and India, you know, what is it? I guess that unifies all those different points of view because everybody's looking for truth and happiness and love in these different countries, but they do it in their own way and the paths look unique, but they so often lead to somewhere very similar. And so that was kind of the idea behind all our waves are water. The, the title was like, what is it? And I think you have to travel to start to see, you know, how the differences, the different waves do have a fundamental essence, the water. Where would you say provided for you the biggest change in these pathways to love, uh, humanity, happiness? So since every culture kind of finds it in their own way, which one would you say was one of your favorite ways or the ways people connected that really stuck out to you that was different from America? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's there's been so many. I mean, I love the Hawaiian culture. I've, I've gained so much from uh, spending time there and 
as well as like the Balinese um, and Indian uh, South Asian culture. But the one that sticks in my head right now is um, I think because it opens up all our waves of water is uh, the Tibetan worldview. Um, and I, I really encountered it. I had read lots of, you know, some books by the Dalai Lama and, you know, like knew a little bit about Tibet, but I happened to come across a monk um, named Sonam, who's a big character in the book, um, when I was like face down in a ditch, heartbroken. Like my girlfriend of three years, we'd planned this trip to India. We were going to live there for a year. A month before the trip, she finds another guy. <laughs> and this was like my first love. I just found a way to like finally be committed to her after sort of being wishy-washy. And then I'm like, oh, now, now you're leaving. Of course it works like that. Um, but anyway, I was just not doing well, just reeling in the darkness. And I'd been wandering the country for months. And I finally go up to the Himalayas and meet a heartbroken Tibetan monk named Sonam. And he was heartbroken because he had lost track of his family. He had basically come over to India from Tibet when he was 11. And he's looking for his family, doesn't know if he'll ever find them again. And at one point, he's looking at the snow and while we were hiking, and he picks up the snow, and he's like, Jama, this very sad India snow, Tibet snow, very same, same, many thinking my family. And... I put my arm around him and I was like, Sonam, I'm so sorry, you know, that you can't, that you can't go home right now. And he looked at me and he goes, Jama, you're funny. This very sad, no problem. And that line has been a mantra in my life for the last 15 years. I mean, since I heard it, this very sad, no problem. Because when I started this meditation practice i think a lot of us begin like we see a, a teacher and we're like oh they look so serene and now i'm beginning to meditate so i'm going to be serene but there are a lot of stages <laughs> to get to that place and one of them many of them are about honoring emotion about sort of riding the waves of emotion and letting them come through and i think being still a beginner i was still kind of trying to use meditation to like skate over emotion and escape it and so Nam, I think because the Tibetan worldview is very, um, you know, they have all those wrathful deities and um, peaceful deities and serene deities. And really, those are reflections of all the different facets of the mind. And that all of those emotions, they have a fundamental Buddha nature, an, aware, an awakeness. And so when you start practicing in the Tibetan tradition, you realize immediately that like you've got to get used to the big waves and the small waves and the ferocious waves and kind of be cool with them. And that's what practice is about. And, and he woke me up to that. I never really understood it on an experiential level. And I'm so grateful to him. Mm, I love this part in the book. It is amazing. I, I just, I think that is something that so many people that I'm personally around also forget to do because there are so many emotions. I talked about this actually in a recent episode with another guest, how we, we uncovered like anger, anxiety, and sadness. And especially for women, they struggle with feeling one of the emotions of anger. And then I think a lot for men, they struggle with openly and vulnerably expressing sadness. So women are going around repressing their anger because they think 
it is not as socially acceptable for a woman to be angry, like really angry, because then she becomes like a bitch, right? They put that word on her. And then men get their own words if they're sad. And it's, it's so heartbreaking, but also that is a beautiful pathway, I think, for people to uncover their true selves, being able to finally experience all the repressed emotions they've had in their life. And so it's great that you're talking about this because when people come to meditation, the goal isn't to automatically be serene, never have any problems or never get upset about anything going on in your life. It's about being able to fully feel every emotion, even sit in that emotion, let it run its course and then pass when it's ready. And I love how this relates to the water with the sereneness, but sometimes there's waves and the waves have to pass through and the waves have to go. And sometimes you ride the currents of life and sometimes you're just floating there. And all of this is part of the human experience. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, I, I, I love that what you're talking about. How do you... I mean, what do you teach on your retreats in terms of allowing, you know, men and women to sort of get in touch with those emotions they're used to repressing? I'm always curious because that's kind of what I am encouraging through these stories. But, you know, um, everybody's got their own approach. Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> yes, so I talk a lot, a lot, a lot about vulnerability um, and how that experience of sharing vulnerably your um, your biggest pains in life and how that could eventually turn into your biggest passions in some way. That was certainly the case for me, but that's not the goal. The goal is just to be vulnerable and share and, and see how many people will say, oh my gosh, me too, and to relate and to hold space. One of the biggest fears people have is that, oh my gosh, if people knew this about me, then they wouldn't love me. And so when you openly come out and share these things, even with strangers, and everyone is still there, still holding space for you, maybe saying me too, it's a really powerful experience of release. And I also do a lot of work around um, the feminine and the masculine, talking about the how to harmonize them, because I do think that a lot of root issues with people, for example, men who have a phobia to sadness, there's probably a lot of connotations, negative ones they have around the feminine, thinking like their feminine side is weakness. And that's the same for a lot of women too. They go overly on the masculine side because they're afraid of their femininity, but could be vice versa. They could be really terrified of being direct and a go-getter. And so they're not harmonizing any of their masculine with their feminine. So there's this huge imbalance and a lot of times this imbalance causes shame because whatever it is that they're repressing, they feel shame about the repression and then it goes back into this entire cycle where they go to the coping mechanism that's keeping them hostage, such as alcohol, sex addiction, disordered eating, over-exercising, whatever it may be, insecurities. And they just stay yeah. in this, this cycle in this loop. So when you start to harmonize these energies, so much more peace and so much more clarity around who you are, comes to be and I'm sure that's the same way with so many things you're teaching about expressing your emotions feeling what you're feeling and not making it this end goal to be perfectly peaceful and serene all the time right yeah that's beautifully put and I like what you're saying and um yeah and I almost think there needs to be a way of showing that 
you know, we have this connotation or this sort of assumption that being sad as a male, for example, is weak. Um, but actually being vulnerable uh, and showing that sadness and talking about it with other men is like the most courageous thing you can do <laughs> as a, a man and, and being and uh, able to talk about anger, you know, like you're saying, or, or, or talk about being assertive um, and not being afraid of, of, of what that might mean as a woman is also like an extremely courageous thing to do because you're breaking norms. And it was interesting. My, I mean, my book before this was called the fear project and it was about a lot about neuroscience and, and how we break through fear. And I wanted to learn about like, how does this work in the brain? Um, to be able to talk about it in that way that, that, um, some people need to hear. And, um, the interesting thing was, was I was doing a lot of like extreme sports analogies because I love to surf and I was talking to all these athletes about like breaking through fear on the big waves. And, you know, I realized this is a kind of courage. I mean, just getting through the wall of fear that comes up in moments of adrenaline, but like, what is true courage and, and how does it different from bravado, which is sort of bravado is something that I think a lot of men are taught is courage. Like, you know, kind of like Donald Trump, like, I'm going to, I can do anything. I can say anything. <laughs> nobody will, nobody like, I'm fearless. I don't care what you think, but it's really, you know, his, uh, ability to do that is based on this, you know, we sense a fundamental insecurity. Um, and so I need to prove something. And is that courage? You know, I don't know, but like cur real courage, I think is that comes from the French word cur heart. And it's about, I think wanting to connect to a sort of greater love, a greater connection. And it's in that vulnerability that we can find that heart connection. And so to be truly courageous, I think is about being true. It's about being completely honest and vulnerable. And when you do that, it's like all of a sudden, like you're saying in a room full of people, everybody else is like, Oh, that's me too. Like, cause you know, the truth is one, it doesn't matter how you talk about it. It's like people have different words to describe it, but everybody's like, Oh yeah. And so, you know, it, it took me like really going down the road of bravado and seeing how it's not that satisfying when you do something that's quote unquote courageous, if it's just to sort of, you know, cover up an insecurity. But when you can finally be yourself, and really that's what we all want is to be able to be ourselves and, and realize that we're, we can be loved just as we are, that that kind of courage gives you a true kind of joy because you're like, Oh, finally I can feel this. And look, actually I make deeper connections with other humans. Um, rather than being rejected, you know, by the tribe, it's actually the complete opposite. I'm kind of being welcomed in a true way into, into the tribe, you know? Mm -hmm. I find it so interesting that people try to stay away from vulnerability out of the fear that it will, shun them from this friend group but if that would be the case first of all those aren't really the friends that you want to have but normally typically that's exactly what's going to make this group tighter and sometimes it needs to be it needs to start with one person who's going to open up that space and when one person does it then everyone feels safe i always like at my retreats i always share i'm the first to go and i share something i've never shared before and then mm. that holds the space i don't think it's 
it's always just, okay, there's automatic vulnerability here. Like it needs to be created. So I'm going out on a limb here to ask you, but what is, if you could share one of the most vulnerable experiences you've had in your life? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, there's, it's funny. There's one that comes to mind. There's been so many, um, but there's one that the one that's coming to mind I've, I've never talked about. And it was in the, in the book I'm talking about this girlfriend, Sati, who, who left me and once we were in India, but just before we actually went to India and I never experienced pain like this. And it was because it was by the way, because I'd never grieved any of the relationship pain from my parents' divorce. And so when Sati left me, I thought my world was caving in because she was the one and I'd lost her. And what I didn't realize was because I'd never been vulnerable with myself and talked about it, I was actually like grieving my parents um, and the, and the feeling of abandonment that I'd had. And, and so I was like, why is this so big? Why is it endless pain? Um, and I didn't know at that point. It was just, I was just feeling the pain. And it's funny what we will try to do when we think somebody out there can feel the pain, like something out there. And I was sure it was Sati, you know, she was the only one. And she was this real, um, like Berkeley, she'd become, she was going to UC Berkeley, this real activist. And the guy who she was, she had found was a real, um, intellectual activist too, who was like really passionate about the, um, Palestinian justice issues. And so it's almost comical to look back. I was, <laughs> I was, I'm not somebody who's, who's naturally drawn to politics. You know, I, I, I'm interested, but I'm, it's not like where, where my skills are. And so, but I found myself in this period, like convincing myself that this was my new passion, Palestinian justice. <laughs> and <laughs> I joined the students for justice in Palestine and on campus and they immediately they needed a new president because there was all this turmoil and they were like do you want to be president <laughs> and so i said yes i want to be president and all this time i'm convincing myself this isn't to get sati back that this is just like i've just gotten this passion this week um <laughs> they they tell me like okay great because there's a big speech <laughs> you can do in the quad meanwhile this was at san francisco state and the Palestine-Israel turmoil is like flaring up like crazy and there's all this invective going in both ways. And to be honest, like I've studied a little bit about it, but I'm not, you know, truly immersed. So I decided I'm going to give this speech and because it wasn't really authentic, when I got up there, I froze. And I just realized I, I, and this was in front of probably... 5,000 students at my campus and I had nothing to say. And so I kind of, you know, muttered a few things about signing up for students for justice in Palestine, about how I'm the new president. And it was mortifying. I mean, it was just mortifying. And, but it was such a good lesson because I had to kind of experience that to realize like it, it, it showed me one, at the time, I said, okay, maybe this isn't my thing. I don't know if I'm going to do this. And it took 
longer to realize what I had done and how I'd manipulated myself into thinking that this was a, a new passion. But so often that's the case is when we think, you know, with desire, um, we often are going after these things that we sort of lust after, and they're often symbols of something. You know, that's a more straightforward example, um, but they're often symbols of something that um, we haven't sort of unlocked in our unconscious. And um, so it was a good experience, a really embarrassing one. <laughs> that's so, like, I feel for you so much because I know what that feels like. I've had experiences like that, and it's it's pretty traumatizing. So good on you for <laughs> being able to get through that. But how long how long did it take you after that experience to realize that there was the the subconscious work that needed to be looked at from healing the pain with your parents. Because I'm sure right after that happened, you didn't immediately realize like what was happening. Did it take you Uh years and years to finally make this connection or did you make it pretty soon after? I made it as I talk about in the book when I finally met Sonam and it wasn't just in meeting him. I had to do the work myself. And so because I was in, still reeling even after I met him and I was starting to do a little more daily meditation. I was living up there in the Himalayas for about six months, um, teaching English and such. But it wasn't until I went and did a 10 day, um, Vipassana retreat, you know, silent retreat Mm -hmm. and really just had to sit with those emotions day after day. And they started as happens in silence when we give our our minds the space to unwind um the uh the stories kind of start you know they kept churning about that this is what the sadness is about or this is how i'm going to get sati back or this is and then you know after hour eight in the day or something you know the you finally are starting to get into your body and where you're holding these emotions and and the mind kind of stops telling the stories a little bit. And you realize there are memories and feelings like trapped in, you know, our bodies are like layers of emotion and that we've held in. And, you know, whether it's yoga or meditation or therapy, there are ways to peel those back. And so suddenly I started getting memories from my childhood on this long retreat that I'd never grieved about, you know, the time when my dad came home and said he was leaving for another marriage and how I'd never really, I never felt that anger. I never, you know, just sobbed for my mom, you know, who was in that, that, in that moment. And so that's when some of the connections kind of started being revealed and I didn't want to make it into more stories of like, Oh, this is what it was, but it was, that was part of it. But the public speaking thing <laughs> that did from the Palestine moment, it did traumatize me a little bit from public speaking. I'd never been that afraid of public speaking. Like I was actually somebody who like felt okay. And that moment I, it took me, um, it wasn't really until going on my first book tour that I realized how much that traumatized me. And I had to do, you know, a number of speaking engagements and having positive sort of taking positive baby steps toward that fear to really get back over that. So doing it now today, it feels much more natural and that's pretty much gone. And you're, I mean, when I know when you talk about something you're passionate about, it's always easier, but I still have that fright like majorly whenever I get up on a stage. (laughs) 
it doesn't go away. You just become more comfortable with it. I think, um, you know, the butterflies are there and, and now what happens is a, you're right. I'm talking about something I believe in. And so you're going to give a better talk when you're speaking authentically. But, um, also, uh, now I think I've learned to just embrace those butterflies because there's two ways to function with, you know, increased adrenaline in the body. One is to say, oh no, I'm feeling afraid and this is going to go badly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the other is to say, oh good, I'm feeling nervous. That means I care about this. This is really important to me. And it's actually going to give me the energy that I need to be dynamic and other people are going to feel that energy. So I try to frame it up in the positive like that. But I'd, I'd love to hear what you do because I, I, you speak a lot. Actually, I speak a lot with my computer and in small groups. I do like retreat work, one-on-one -on -one work and podcasting. So it's like very intimate. I did my first. So I had a traumatizing experience kind of as well. Not with speaking though. It was actually um, when I was in middle school, I was like, I'm going to be a cheerleader. Okay, I didn't know. I was in the marching band, so, like, I didn't know anything about cheerleading. I just wanted to, like, be one of those cool, cute girls that were a cheerleader. And sure. I tried out, and it was probably one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life because I completely forgot the entire routine in front of a huge panel of judges. And I uh, ran out of the room crying, and all the cheerleaders were like, oh, my gosh, like, what did you just do? So that was not speaking, but that was like a, you know, me on a, me on a stage performing type of thing. And so I always, after that, thought like, oh my gosh, if I'm speaking or doing anything in front of people, trying out for anything, it's humiliating. Um, but I recently did a talk in front of 200 people, and it was fine. One of the biggest things that helped me was someone had told me, that there is not a difference between nervousness and excitement. It's only the stories you tell around it. And that really helped me, that the feeling of excitement about something and being nervous about something is the same. It's just what you're saying about it. I'm nervous because I could fail. I'm nervous because this is scary. Or I'm excited because this is, I'm getting out of my comfort zone. Same emotion, different stories. Whether that's 110% true or not, that really helped me to just think about, okay, stop telling myself the story that I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I'm actually just excited, this is taking me to that next level so that I can start talking to big groups more comfortably, it's going to be like giving me so much more confidence to do this in the future, which will open up new job opportunities, all of that. That's helpful. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the same thing that I do. And it's interesting, I mean, when I was looking at all the studies about fear, if you um, if you have a little bit of fear and adrenaline, but not too much, it really does help you get into peak performance, like, you know, that place where, you know, Steph Curry's hitting all his threes. And it's interesting, you see that in athletes, like if they kind of come a little overconfident and lackadaisical, they will, like they've lost a little bit of the fear or the adrenaline, um, they sometimes will underperform. And so I think, um, and I've heard a lot of performers talk about that, that they actually start to fear not getting butterflies because after a while, because the, the, the performing, especially like Broadway actors, 
can become so routine. And if they don't have the adrenaline, they won't um, have the dynamism. And so, you know, we're just in the beginning, it's like you want to kind of reel that in. You're like, oh, I'm too much excitement right now. But, um, you know, to keep framing it in the positive. And the other thing that I find really helpful is to remind yourself, like, this is what I love to do. You know, it's like if you're giving a talk about something that you're passionate about, and I think it's another reason to do something you're passionate about. Um, if you frame it up with like, this is, I'm so lucky, you know, with gratitude, that also, I think, shifts the brain really immediately. Yeah. As you were talking, that made me think about love because it's very similar. It's like when you have the butterflies and you're nervous and there's a little bit of risk at the beginning of a relationship, that's what you're actually being fueled on is passion and that roller coaster of like passion and the what ifs and the newness. It's so exciting. And so you're on your game. But then after a while, once you start to glide into routine, maybe you live together, maybe there's not quite as much ups and downs and it's pretty steady like why are you still there you're there for the love of the relationship and it's important to stay in touch with that and to remember the gratitude it's the very same thing and if you're loving what you're doing then there's that binding that glue holding you to do it but you know in some senses it's good to always realize that you don't have a right to be speaking on a stage you don't have a, a right to this person like you have to show up and express your love and be grateful for what you do have. That's so true. And it's so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm married and have three kids and it's so easy for my wife and I kind of become ships passing in the night where we're just like, Oh, Hey, like high five, you know, <laughs> nice job with the kids. See you tomorrow. And, um, and there isn't as much of a threat once you're married of like, am I going to lose this person? You know, it's like you become comfortable and you can become too comfortable and forget to show up. And that's the challenge of long-term relationships. And I find um, that I'm really helped, especially by um, some of the reflections of these like great contemplative traditions on mortality. Um, you know, I just lost my dad this year. And, um, it, and I think having kids, you, you feel your own mortality too. And so I try to reflect every day, you know, that like I could have a day, this might be it, <laughs> or I could have 80 years. We, you just really never know. You really do never know. And so, you know, you have to bring it, you have to show up today and tell people that you love them today and not take them for granted. I mean, not only might you, um, pass but like you know your loved ones are not here forever and it's like to that basic reflection it doesn't have to be morbid at all i think it's like so enriching to and brings you into the moment and true mindfulness not in this sort of like a lot of times we practice mindfulness and we're like okay i'm gonna be present i'm gonna be present i'm gonna be present but it's not like fully embodied presence that comes from the heart and when you reflect on the impermanence and that like yeah, you don't have forever. It can bring you really into the heart, I think, and be like, you know, I am, I'm so lucky to have this person, you know, it's not like it was when we just first, we first met, but it's different now. And we have different, the challenges are different. And, you know, I need to appreciate that. And um, so anyway, that's a little trick I use. 
Yeah, I see. I think about this thought often as well. Um, to be honest, I think I still need some work there to see it as an enriching thing. I ever since I was little, though, so some background. When I was young, I had OCD, and I had this like I think this kind of goes along with OCD, but I had this immense fear of uh, tr something tragic happening when I was very young. So with my OCD, like feeding into that, I had this chronic fear of choking. I would carry uh. around a water bottle with me everywhere just in case somehow I choked. I would like loosen the faucets, tighten, loosen, tighten, loosen, like when I was younger. And then I went around all of the houses, unlock the door, lock the door, unlock the door, like feeding my OCD, but also like fueling it towards like danger, danger. Um, so that's gone, but I definitely believe that I still have some lingering attachments to the idea of life and death, and it, it scares mm -hmm. me. And so I want to get to a point where I see it as enriching, but it's going to take some deep work, I believe, some inner work of acceptance around this area, because of course it's going to be sad, of course. But I just have this chronic fear of wanting to protect everyone around me and it sometimes can be slightly debilitating so I've had to really like cool it go with like more flow in my life since that is a big message that I teach is flow to learn to mm -hmm. release and accept and go with the curves of life just like a river so many metaphors with water it's beautiful I love it <laughs> yeah and that's a good point and it's why it's one thing that I think when you feel if if that reflection gets you into kind of a, a, a place that isn't enriching. I think it's it can be a challenge point. And then it can also be like, well, you know, I'm not going to do that right now. And I think mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things about these practices is that, you know, as they say, enlightenment is the simplest thing imaginable, but our, you know, sort of uh, neurological <laughs> neuroses are complex. And so we each... Come, we each need a different medicine. And I think I've been thinking about like positive thinking, how for some people thinking positive actually has the reverse effect where they'll be like, oh, no, I'm going to have a good day. I'm going to have a good day. And then they start thinking it triggers like, but I'm not going to have a good day. I never have a good day. And I'm bad at positive thinking. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, you know, it's like yeah. it'll trigger this avalanche. And so it's better for them just to kind of be themselves and to not force it. And for other people, like a positive affirmation is a lifesaver. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to figure out what works for us. Um, and I think, um, you know, for me, uh, the ref my dad was a big person who really, I think, made us comfortable with death from a young age. He would often joke about it. And so I think I think about him, too. And he had a very graceful passing. I mean, he did have pain and, and, and he had cancer, but he was very, he had a beautiful transition. And so it's something that works in my life, but it's, you know, it's not going to work for everyone. Right. And that's always the case. I'm glad you brought that up about positive thinking because that's so true. And like vision boards, some people love to create vision boards to visualize the type of life they want to have with all of these different colorful images and pictures and some people they make that they hang it up and they just constantly think about the life they don't have and it's like <laughs> it hurts them if anything and it just discourages them very interesting so i'm glad you added that um yeah so true so 
to wrap this beautiful interview up, I'm going to glide into a quick fire round. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you to share with my audience where they can connect with you online. Yeah, I'm in all the places, you know, a usual suspects, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And um, my website is jamalyogis.com. It looks like jaymalyogis.com. Because <laughs> um, that's how my name is uh, sort of prene- uh, looks spelled. Uh, so, yeah, look forward to connecting with people out there. Awesome. And I will make sure I have all those links plus the link to your book, All Our Waves Are Water, on the show notes for this episode. So just a few questions here. You know how they go. Quick fire. Whatever comes to your mind first. All right. Number one. If you were to win an award for anything, what would you be nominated for? I guess it would be um, writing honestly. (laughs) <laughs> mm, that's a good one who would be an actor to play the role of you in a movie about your life I want to say Matthew McConaughey but that's definitely vision boarding <laughs> <laughs> I could see it I mean he's always like I feel like he's always a surfer type of guy I could see it. He has a terrible movie called Surfer Dude that is like one of the all-time like B-grade movies, and um, it, it's worth seeing for how bad it is. I'm a big McConaughey fan, so I can I think he would agree with that statement. My aunt knows him. They were friends at UT. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, yeah, he seems like he seems like a genuine guy. Yeah, he does. Okay, what is a must-read book? Of course, besides your book, because that is must-read. What's another one? I. The one that's coming to mind is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. I think if you're going to read one book on meditation and non-duality, it's simple. You can read it a hundred times and it's always rich. What are two things you want to see happen in the next five years? Uh, I would like to see our world come together around climate. Um, I think... uh, I, you know, having three kids, I really, I think that's the challenge of our time. And so I think that's going to take, you know, some political muscle here. And then I would also love to see, um, uh, the, I love, you know, I'm just really excited about watching my kids go and, and, play together i have three boys (laughs) the youngest one is a baby and like that's what's coming to mind right now is i just it's such it's the joy of my life to see them get to play all three of them and so i'm excited about watching that oh it's so cute okay last question okay second to last question what did you have (laughs) for breakfast what did i have i had a breakfast burrito with green chilies Yum, that sounds awesome. Okay, now last question. If you could pick any other life to live besides the one you have, what would it be? What would you be doing? Oh, man. I would love to have lived during the, uh, like, sort of that uh, early American writers in Paris time, um, you know, when, like, Hemingway and everybody was going over it. It was just... You know, just the art, it was all about just 
bohemianness by the Seine. You know, I'm a I'm a romantic at heart, so I, and I love Paris, <laughs> so I want to go back. Oh, I love it. Well, Jamal, thank you so much for hopping on the Mind Body Musings podcast with me. I loved your book and I loved this interview, so thank you so much. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks for just keeping it real here. I, I really love your voice and teachings. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Everyone, if you want to get the links, all the links we mentioned today, including where to find him, connect with him, and get his book, you can go to maddiemooncom slash jamal-yogis. This is episode 162. You can also get my free audio guide on that page, and I look forward to next week's episode. <laughs>